to Psalm 21. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings, you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is the word of the Lord. Um, but we, uh, this morning, um, if you're just now joining us, my name is Evan Skelton again. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to get right to work today. So if you would, turn in your Bibles, keep your Bibles open to Psalm chapter 21. It's going to be really important that you have the words of our passage right in front of you. I encourage you to make it a habit. If you've got a Bible at home, bring it. If you want to look it up on your phone, download the uh, version app or the ESV Bible app, which is the translation which we use every week here. Um, and uh, if you do not have a Bible, again, the Bible under your seat is our gift to you. But we're going to be picking up in Psalm chapter 21. This whole summer, we are in the book of Psalms. Um, and uh, I'm really excited for it because the book of Psalms is a book that um, just really seems to get us. It's a book that is written at various points in Israel's history through a variety of different experiences, both in the highs and lows of, what, of a life that has lived in allegiance to God. It models what, a ho- what hope in God looks like practically. Again, we, I said last week, it gives you an opportunity to be a fly on the wall, as it were, to listen in on prayers of faith offered both in joys and in deep sorrows. There are a few books in the Bible more honest than the book of Psalms. And yet, when we get to this psalm today, I have to tell you, when we get to Psalm chapter 21, there are, it's, it's possible that you don't particularly find this psalm that relatable. When you get to Psalm 21, what some call a royal psalm, there's a variety of different genres or types of psalms throughout the psalms. Some are praise and some are lament when, the life, when life falls apart. But here, this royal psalm, just like Psalm 20, is a psalm that is particularly about celebrating Israel's king. And for many of us, when we go to these psalms, this may not be the one that you ask to have read on your deathbed. It's a psalm that can feel strange in a culture, particularly a culture that loves individual freedom and has a deep suspicion for authority. I mean, doesn't it sound like, again, if this is a psalm that is entirely about Israel's king, can it, doesn't it sound a little bit like political propaganda? A bit like singing the Star-Spangled Banner or saying the Pledge of Allegiance on a Sunday morning. Now, if you don't see the problem in that, trust me, there is a big problem in that. We're here to worship Jesus as much as we're grateful to be American citizens, not to worship America, right? We're here to worship Jesus. We hear, why in the world would we have a song that's focused in on a king of all people? After all, a monarch is much different than a president. We're talking about a figure that had no checks and balances on their power, an unelected figure, no less, with absolute power that would require absolute loyalty. With shows like The Crown on Netflix, which is really popular, we might be fascinated uh, by kings or queens. But I think many of us are grateful that we do not have one. I mean, how often have you seen someone who has that kind of power, absolute power, demanding absolute loyalty, how often have you seen them use it poorly? Even somebody who starts with grand intentions ends up misusing that power for their own selfish ends and the destruction that it causes. As Lord Acton famously put it, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, it just... 
we don't even, this has plenty of biblical warrant, um, but that observation also comes from human experience. It's a, it's a notion that's all over the Bible, but it's also just something you probably have experienced yourself. And so many of us might be very confused at how Psalm 21 speaks. It almost seems to fawn over this king, longing for this king's rule to never end and to conquer, conquer absolutely everyone. I mean, would you have been able to sing this song if you were an ancient Israelite? Why in the world would we be studying a psalm like this, let alone have something like this in our Bible? Well, because I think we'll find that this psalm is about something much more than an ordinary Israelite king, even the best ones. The expectations are just too massive. No, I think we're going to find that this psalm is actually about Jesus himself. We're going to get there in a second, but Jesus seemed to read the psalms with himself not only as at the very center. He not only identified it, but seems, sees the psalms as pointing directly to him. And I think we're going to see very tangibly why. But today we're going to see three non-negotiables in our psalm together in Psalm 21 that get at the kind of authority, the kind of king, I'm going to argue, that we all need. And at least some part of us, even with all of our skepticism towards authority, knows that we need too. The kind of authority which will actually put the world right. And these non-negotiables are the king's, good king's crown, the good king's conquest, and the good king's confidence. Okay, so you ready with me? The good king's crown, the good king's conquest, and the good king's confidence. Let's start with the first. Now, one of the things that we need to know as we get into the book of Psalms is that Psalms often build off of one another. It's not just 150 random uh, songs that are thrown into your Bible like, a, like it might be in a hymnal, but these Psalms actually carry over some of the same subjects. There seems to be order and intentionality to all of them, and Psalm 21 particularly is connected with the one that we looked at last week. If you weren't here last week, that's perfectly fine, but what you need to know is Psalm 20 we see a request made from the king where he's asking on the verge of battle for the Lord to provide success, a battle that really matters, that he seems to have planned, and the people are hoping, banking all of their hopes upon the fact that this king will come back victorious from battle, but that it really ends off there with confidence, but the battle he has just embarked on. Well, Psalm 21, it picks up after the fact where it seems that God has answered his prayer and that the king has won and comes back victorious to a victorious parade. In Psalm 21, it says in verse 2 that God had fulfilled the heart's desire of this king. Well, that heart's desire goes straight back to verse 4 of chapter 20. In other words, the prayers made in Psalm 20 are fulfilled in Psalm 21. Victory has been won and a celebration has exploded. But still we should ask, in the ancient world, why does that matter? Why was a victory, a military victory, so important? Is it just boys being boys, trying to size each other up in the ancient Near East to prove who was best, to get back at somebody for insulting their mama? I mean, is that what we're looking at here? Just ancient powers trying to show who's strongest. No, for ancient Israel, we need to understand that this territory, their, their land was contested over all the time. It sat at a crossroads between major world empires along major trade routes, and so you find not just local tribes trying to fight over the land that Israel occupied, but that they wanted to, but even world empires fighting on their battlegrounds, taking Israel as the spoils of war. Now, victory, that meant, uh, victory for Israel, for their independence, meant Israel's survival for another day. But it also meant something much more. Imagine with me, for instance, the spectacle that takes place after this king arrives back home. If you, um, if you are, uh, if you remember, particularly if you were old enough to remember, um, after I don't know if if anyone here would have remembered these, but at the parades following World War II. Okay, so parades following World War II, where you have these, uh, where those who had fought in World War II, especially after victory in Europe or victory in Japan. There was parades in the streets as you bring these conquering heroes through the city, and you have ticker tape and um, every, uh, the, um, tears and laughter and celebration that the war has been won, that the war was over. 
Well, here you would have a very similar parade, but it would look a little different, that Israel's king would be the pinnacle of it, the center float, if you will, that it was a parade welcoming the king back home, knowing that with his victory, that meant that your family wasn't going to starve, that your daughters weren't going to be sold as slaves. This king was paraded through the streets, dressed in opulent silks and precious stones, but most importantly, this king would take on the crown. Now, when you hear the crown, we might think of a king always wearing this crown, but you can't think of like a dainty little circlet on the top of his head. No, in the ancient Near East, a crown was something you wore very rarely because it would have been much too awkward. In fact, a crown that David takes from the king of the Ammonites at one point in his life probably weighed around 100 pounds. Imagine wearing that on the top of your head. And it was reserved for occasions like this. So you would come in and they would place the king and place the crown on the king's head once again, not just because it looked majestic, but because when he was crowned, the crown symbolized something much greater to everyone watching. And I think it's actually three things. The first thing that this crown symbolizes is intimacy or relationship. I, w- I want us to, to, in order to understand this, I want us to consider actually a very different kind of symbol, perhaps one that we could relate with a bit more, one that's a little bit smaller, a wedding ring. Okay, so I got this wedding ring now 11 years ago for my wife. We watched her wedding video last night where we said our ring vows with this ring, I thee wed, right? Have you ever asked yourself why is it that most American couples exchange rings? Now, I don't want to get into the origins of where this all comes from. It's not all that clear, but it's not all that important. I actually want to think about our present day. What, is that, what happens in a wedding when a couple exchanges rings? Think about the promises that they make when they put the ring on the other person's finger. Not the kind of like super sappy ones, like I see the stars in your eyes and I promise to make waffles in the morning. I'm talking like the ones that like really matter that are sober-minded, that are almost sacred in their vows. I give you this ring as a visible and constant symbol of my promise to be with you as long as I live. I give you this ring, and just as a ring has no end, neither shall my devotion to you have an end. With this ring, I, I gladly marry you and join my life to yours. You think about these promises that are made when a couple exchanges rings. In other words, the ring promises intimacy, enduring, exclusive intimacy, that you will belong to that other person like you belong to no one else. You belong in an unbreakable way, a kind of commitment that is more appropriately called a covenant, a binding of two people, a a covenant, and most uh, I guess one of the ways to understand a covenant is to understand its opposite, which is a contract, which I fear is what many of our marriages have become, a kind of uh, contract that you sign with the other person that I will bend so long as you bend too. So long as you meet my needs, I will meet yours. And if one person breaks their end of the contract, then you might as well rip the thing up. That's not the biblical vision of marriage. It's much different. It's I bind myself to you till death do us part these promises that are made look actually at a kind of commitment that God had with David himself. When the king took the crown, it stated to the people, everyone watching, that this man was God's man, that he had set his name upon him, his affection upon him. And when the king took, took the crown again, it was a symbol, looking back to Second uh, uh, Samuel 7, in which God would even call this king his own son. When the king took the crown, it didn't just say that the king could go on ruling, although we'll get to this in a second. It meant he could go on enjoying. Enjoying something very particular, not enjoying the reign itself, but God himself and the particular exclusive loyalty he had from that kind of God, regarded as a son to a beloved father. We'll return to this idea in a bit later, but notice the phrase in verse 6. This is why it's important to have your Bibles in front of you, to see these phrases. All of them are so important. Verse 6, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. The happiness of the king at least the king that the psalm describes, was in God. 
And a return from war meant a return from the te- to the temple, a return to God's presence, where our passage tells us that the psalmist was made glad. He could go on enjoying the relationship he had with God itself. When he came back from war, taking the crown on his head, it was declaring to all that this was God's man who enjoyed a relationship like a father does to, or like a son does to a beloved father. But it's second illustration, or the second meaning that the crown would also have that you see in this psalm is glory. Now, I, I also think in this passage of uh, a wedding ring once more, but in a different kind of sense. You see, I think of the ring that I gave to my wife when we first got married. During college, before uh, we, were, we got engaged, um, I remember working my tail off painting houses. I've, I've worked a lot of different jobs, a lot of difficult jobs, um, but I remember painting houses in those hot, sweaty summers. Um, but remember, uh, more than I remember these sweaty days um, and, uh, and all of my, I mean, I, yeah, scars I literally care from that, carry from that time, uh, that I remember what was the end result of that. I remember the day that I took all of that hard-earned money to pick out the ring, now, I could have gotten my wife a ring from Dollar Tree, to be honest. Now, if you did, that's, that's okay, but just stick with the illustration, okay? I could have twisted up a paper clip and slid it on her finger. It would have served the purpose, but, you know, I wanted that ring to symbolize, this, symbolize something so much more to my wife. This strip of diamonds and white gold that I picked out and, and gave to her symbolized much more than my once-again empty bank account It symbolized the splendor of my love for her, my affection for my bride-to-be, and my desire to only give good things to her forever, as long as we both shall live. Again, this seems to be what is going on a little bit with the crown. It's certainly assumed in the verses surrounding it. The king's crown, you see, wasn't just impressive, It represented God's favor, that God himself was crowning the king, and he was crowning that king with some of his own glory. Do you notice the language in verse 5? His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow upon him. Whose glory is it talking about here? You know, a knee-jerk response, a Sunday school answer would tell you, well, it's, it's God's glory, no, it's actually speaking of the king's glory, isn't it? If Jesus, oh, sorry, we'll get to Jesus in a second. If God is giving salvation, if the one giving salvation, then he's also the one here giving glory, splendor, and majesty to this king. Words we're usually used to ascribing to God himself. This God of eternal beauty was sharing some of his splendor with the servant that he loved, But there's still a third thing that this crown symbolized, and perhaps it's the most obvious to us. The reason that the king could enjoy intimacy and glory from God himself is because of the authority also entrusted to him. This crown symbolized, number three, authority. Again, so my wife and I have been watching the crown. Now, please don't take that as a recommendation. Some of you are like, he watched the crown. Okay, so there's some things, like in a lot of things, you have to skip over, okay? So don't take this as a blanket endorsement. But nonetheless, still, it's fascinating how Queen Elizabeth speaks through the show, speaks throughout the show. She makes a distinction very often between her person, between herself as a person, as a Elizabeth, or Lilibet, as she, he is no, she is known affectionately by her husband, she makes a distinction between herself and the crown that she wears, a crown that she actually doesn't wear that often. At various points, in fact, as she is making decisions about whether she needs to promote something or not, to attend something or not, or to do or say some, a, a certain thing, particularly when she needs to turn something or someone down, she says something along the lines of, the crown does not do that, the crown does not say that, or the crown does or, does, or will do that. It's very fascinating. What is she saying? What's she doing? In a sense, she's saying, I, Elizabeth, may or may not want to do this certain thing, but Elizabeth doesn't matter here. The crown does. The role I occupy and carry out does. The crown is much bigger than me. 
There is something of that here also, where the crown symbolizes authority, an authority that transcends the individual bearing it, and it's an authority that dare not be misused. In fact, thinking of our passage specifically, this authority is linked with God himself. It is entrusted authority, as if this individual, this king who is crowned, is ruling on God's behalf. And when that king would take the crown again after battle, one of the reasons his people would celebrate is because he was taking up his authority again, reasserting his right to rule. In other words, he could go on ruling his people, which is actually what verse 4 is referring to. If you want to look at verse 4, he asked life of you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. When the passage says that the king asked length of days, forever and ever. What does that mean? Is that an exaggerated way of saying he's asking to avoid death, just make sure I don't die in the face of battle? Then why doesn't it stop with he asked life of you and you gave it to him? Why, why does it seem that he is asking for unending life, eternal life? We're going to come back to this, sec- this question in a second, After all, there are some really important implications of that kind of statement. But what we need to realize is that the king doesn't just ask for life because he fears death or something like it. He asks for life that his life might continue to be used by his God for a certain purpose. He asks for life so that he could go on ruling God's people as God had called him to do. In other words, he asks for life because he knows that something much grand is of, of, of much more importance than just his life. It is the authority entrusted by God himself so he could continue to work for his people's good. In other words, God, save me, rescue me so I can continue to do what you've asked me to do to secure this people's joy and to lead them to worship. You see, the Bible assumes that you and I need a king. We need a ruler. You and me, we were actually made to be under authority. We actually end up, according to the Bible, thriving under the right authority. Now, I, have, I hardly have to tell you that that's really hard for many of us to accept. Just, not just in an individualistic culture where we want to be our own woman or man. Not just in a, uh, I, I know that in many, uh, in our neighborhood, we're particularly in a union culture, which is often skeptical towards authority. But so many of us, I think, today have come to equate power with corruption, to suspect power, to equate power with oppression. We see some as the power holders and then those who were um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, could I get some water possibly, sweetheart? Thank you. If I'm going to make it through this. Okay, so we see those who are the oppressors who hold the power and those who lack the power, who are made vulnerable and abused. We tend to to, uh, rank each other on this spectrum about who has power and who doesn't and who deserves it and and perhaps this power should, if it's going to be used at all, should be just shared equally or given to the ones who have have lacked it. So we have this skepticism automatically when it comes to power. We suspect power and have good reason to, I think, based on the examples that we have, let alone absolute power, let alone what this is saying, an eternal reign of absolute power, a king who would never leave his throne. Isn't she wonderful? Thank you, sweetheart. Mm. Sweet relief. Okay. This is where the psalm, again, can sound a bit like propaganda. Like another ruler papering over their mistakes, claiming divine authority for anything they would think or do, refusing to tolerate criticism, even demanding to be worshipped. In fact, we have a, a number of historical examples of this, where human leaders like Pharaoh or like Caesar demanded to be worshipped. Or even, in, in case you think this is ancient societies, we have plenty of this today, much like Kim Jong-un in North Korea, whose father declared himself to be the eternal president of the republic. Not just president of the republic, he declared himself to be the eternal president of the republic, erecting for himself 
more than 500 statues, which he spread around North Korea, declaring his birthday as a national holiday, as the Day of the Sun, and even created a new calendar beginning with his birth, where he says he came to earth from heaven. Just think about how many injustices then that worship of this one man has legitimized, including gulag-like prison camps, which house somewhere between 80,000 to 120,000 prisoners right now, who endure daily torture, forced labor, sexual abuse, systemic starvation, and regular executions. How in the world does that kind of injustice go on? Because that government also requires worship of its king. So why is Psalm 21 so different when it seems to almost invite us into worship, fawning adoration of a particular king? Isn't this just putting a divine stamp of approval on yet another power-hungry, self-serving tyrant? Well, it doesn't take long and reading the Old Testament, I have to tell you, to find out that this is an immediate and emphatic no. There is a huge difference between this and what we often see legitimized. After all, this king, Israel's king, was held accountable from the very day that he took the throne to another authority. He was held accountable to the word of God itself. It's no coincidence that the first task of his rule was to be in transcribing God's word, to remind himself he was a man who stood under authority. And, he was, uh, and it would be by that authority he would be measured by. Unlike un- ancient Near Eastern kings, the king wasn't seen as speaking from the gods. That, it wasn't seen that whatever he said or did came directly from heaven. No, no, Israel knew better than that. They knew that, that God had already spoken elsewhere. He had given a metric by which they would be measured and their king, more importantly, would be measured. His spoken word was the ruler by even, that even the king was to be measured against, which provoked some of the most significant conflicts that we see in, this, in the scriptures. In fact, the Bible has no problem being critical of its kings even David, the ideal king of Israel. And when they fell short of the expectations that God had set of them, even when they, insist, when they insisted on using that authority for what seemed good ends but turned out to be selfish ones, God was happy to depose them, dealing out sometimes radical and cringeworthy justice, vengeance. God would not allow the one who was ruling his people to misuse that authority for his own aims. But there is an even more important reason why Psalm 21 is different than pure propaganda, why it could be sung by Israel even when their kings failed to live up to its expectations. But to understand this, we need to understand how the psalm both looks backward and looks forward. We're going to look at how it looks backward and we're going to hold off how it looks forward for a, for a little while. But First, we need to say that the psalm was built upon or rooted in another chapter in the Bible, a promise that God made to another king, or really the, the paradigm of good kings, David. A king writing here in 2 Samuel 7. Um, he, uh, we, we see a promise, again, a covenant called the Davidic Covenant, in which God promises to give David, his king, remarkable privileges. He promises, first, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Notice the intimacy language there. They would have a particular kind of relationship and commitment. He promises also unparalleled reputation, a name, he says, like a name of the great ones of the earth. Notice the glory image there. But notice perhaps the most shocking promise that he would give to this Davidic figure, this king who would come after David, is an eternal throne, a kingdom that would be established forever. 2 Samuel 7.16 says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What does this mean? Does this just mean that David would always have a descendant upon the throne? Well, there's a period of history where it didn't seem that there would be any descendant ever to come again. Does it just 
exaggeration, hyperbole. After all, we hear things from other ancient Near Eastern kings that were similar to like the claims of King Jong-un or his father, bragging that they would reign eternally, that they would never be challenged or removed. Spoiler alert, they've all died now since then. And just, just as Israel's kings had after this, before we answer this, is this just exaggeration? <clears throat> Again, this forever language may seem like hyperbole, and many have, and perhaps even the first readers would have seen it this way, but there's something in this that seems to, to hint, to long for something much grander, a, a, a rule that would actually be eternal, a rule that would actually be forever. Because <clears throat> I want us to notice the language here. Why would that be so important? Why in the world would they, let alone we, <clears throat> want a king, let alone a king, to rule over us forever. I mean, after all, don't we put term limits on our presidents? I mean, doesn't absolute power corrupt? We have all the evidence we need of that very fact and plenty of biblical support to back it up. And yet, I think, under all of our individualism, all of our cynicism toward power, I think we cannot help but long for someone who has power and uses it well. In fact, if we had that kind of person, and if we somehow knew that that king, if you will, if we could have the assurance that he would do what so many of our leaders hadn't done, that he would never be corrupted by that power, that he would never be removed from his throne. Wouldn't we want that kind of leader to go on leading? After all, 2 Samuel 7 assumes all of these promises, including the promise of an eternal throne, isn't actually just for the king's sake. It's for his people's sake. It grounds all this in 2 Samuel 7, verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. It is after this assurance to bless his people, to give them stability and security and peace forever, that he says then, therefore, I am giving you a king. Even though we are skeptical that something like that could ever take place, I think some of us long for that kind of authority who would protect us, who would use that power only for our good and would never be corrupted by it, never be removed from that kind of reign, and could be trusted to do it forever and ever. It's perhaps why I think today, even as we're skeptical, skeptical we so easily for really worship our authorities today. It could be our celebrities or scholars or influencers. Instead of a king, it could be a president. Even the fact that we get so angry by our political figures can reveal worship. The kind of anger that's only explained by someone we have given ultimate importance to that fails us in an ultimate way. Even in a culture like ours that loves its independence, we cannot help but worship our authorities binding our hope for a better world up with them. Given all of the evidence to the contrary, why does this happen generation after generation after generation? Because I think something inside of us knows that not only can we not throw off authority, but we can't, we, we can't help but long for the right authority, a king whose heart desire, according to this passage, is the good of his people, the good of those he rules, This is the purpose, actually, of all the intimacy, all the glory, all the authority that's entrusted to God's king. It's not just for him to enjoy. It's given that the king might overflow these privileges to his people, that through their king, they might know and experience that their God is good. This is the king we need, a king whose authority would be for our good, whose victory would plant us to dwell in our own place, to be disturbed no more, to use that language. A king who would transfer us into a kingdom that we would never want to leave. But then how does this kingdom come? We're going to leave verse 7 aside for a second. We're going to skip over it. We'll come back to it. And we want to look at verse 8 through 13 and the king's conquest. Now, at first glance, I have to tell you these verses are troubling. In fact, just look at the images that stand out from them and notice how often fire is mentioned. A blazing furnace, it says. It pictures 
the same king that the people sung about, longed for, hoped in, who enjoyed such privileges from God, who worked for his people's good, it speaks of that same king hunting down his enemies, swallowing them up like a merciless wildfire, not only frustrating their plans, but completely eradicating their kind. It even says eradicating their descendants. He not only puts his enemies to flight, but aims the bow at their faces to kill. I have to tell you, some of us probably wish that the psalm ended at verse 7. What do we make of these verses? I think we can say three things, actually, at this point. First, even though these verses might make us uncomfortable, we need to say that they're part of God's inspired word, and as a part of God's inspired word, as the verses that came before it, God has put them there with purpose. I don't mean to be snarky, but it is important to say that we can try to construct our own reality. We can try to imagine God to be different than how, than to, to be how we would prefer him to be, to be different than how he reveals himself to be. But to what end? What purpose would that kind of religion be where God was just a God of my own imagination that ended up looking a lot like myself? Who would I end up being worshiping, really? Was it actually the God who was there or perhaps, in the end, me? We can try and construct a God of our own imagination, but again, to what end? So that we might feel better? Faith isn't about blinding yourself with some fairy tale that helps you sleep at night. The faith that we actually need that will sustain us through good times and bad, that will actually give us assurances of the world to come, is a, of a faith that deals with the world as it actually is, and the God who is actually there. True maturity I think we would all say, isn't dismissing something simply because it makes you uncomfortable. True maturity is honest, even when it hurts. Second, as offended as we in our Western culture get by a wrathful God, I need to tell you this is not the worldwide perspective. This is relatively a Western problem. In other parts of the world, Readers of the Bible don't even blink an eye at, at statements like this, as strange as that might sound to us. Of course, they would say God would be just and wrathful. In fact, what many cannot stand in the scriptures is the fact that God would forgive, that God would tell us even to love our enemies. In, in, fact, in other words, what is so offensive in many cultures isn't the wrath of God, it is the love, the rather extreme love of God. Other in other words, again, every culture gets offended by God's word at some point. I'm perhaps just putting a finger on a particular wound of ours. Do we assume that our particular intu intuitions, our gag reflexes are really so objective? Are we really so arrogant as to assume that we have the only unbiased way to see the world, that we are somehow more unbiased than others are? But third, and this is perhaps the most important, the world of blessing and peace, which verse 1 through 7 seems to assume, in actuality, must come by wrath. I realize this sounds a little bit backward to many modern people. The idea of wrath and judgment, let alone hell, sounds like a scare tactic left over from primitive religion to keep people in line. Others of us may not go that far. We wouldn't want to dismiss it, but certainly we wonder in the back corner of our mind how essential God's justice really is to Christianity. I mean, why is it that God's people seem to sing over God's justice about a king who conquers? Well, despite the fact that we imagine that anger and love are warring enemies, that God can't be both angry and loving, as strange as it might sound, in order to have a loving God, you must have a wrathful God. You must have an angry one. Even in our experience, I have to tell you, we experience that on uh, maybe not a daily basis, but quite often. Often anger, in fact, awakens because of love. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that you found out that your child or your niece or nephew had been abused. Is it right for you to get angry? Is it right for you to care that their abuser face legal consequences, that it stop, that they get protection? Yes, it is right and good to get angry. To not get angry is to not care. 
The more loving you are, in fact, in that scenario, the more angry you will get. Why? Because, again, we need a God who not only sees injustice, but says that it matters. And that a day is coming in which injustice will be addressed. It will not go forever unseen. For anyone who has experienced injustice or oppression, these verses are a comfort, as they are a comfort to many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world today, that God will respond how we would if we knew what he did. Only those who have lived comfortable, untroubled lives can so easily pretend that wrongdoing can simply be swept under the carpet. This passage assumes that a world of peace only comes after the fires of judgment. But take a Let's take a different approach. Uh, How do we expect that a world free of corruption, sickness, evil, and death, a world that we long for, how do we expect that it's going to come about? Do we really think that a world where cancer ravages randomly or a rape culture which dominates our college campuses or where little little girls are trafficked today for sex or thousands are massacred for simply their race? Do we really think that a world like that that our hope is found in politics? Do we really think that a world free of all of these things is fixed by the next iPhone update? Do we think it's fixed by eating healthy or simply distracting ourselves with another Hulu episode and hoping for the best? It comes only as God sees evil as it is and hates evil as much as it deserves and has the power to conquer it. We need the justice of God which is as much an expression of his anger against those who have rejected him and abused his people as it is an expression of love for his glory and for those he would vindicate. This is one of the reasons why the reality of hell, an eternal place of separation and punishment for those who do not rest upon Christ for faith, actually has a key place in Christianity. Why it cannot be dismissed. That's why as much as it might surprise us to hear it, Jesus talks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. In fact, the only person ever to use the word hell in Scripture other than in the book of James chapter 3 is Jesus. And he uses the same image for hell as our passage does for the king's wrath, a fiery furnace. No one likes to talk about hell or the wrath of God. I have to tell you, I was nervous even thinking over these things today. Something would have to be seriously wrong with us if we could talk about these things with a smile on our face. After all, Christians are sobered by the fact that apart from God's intervention, they would too be on the wrong side of God's justice. They, Christians know that they're not Christians simply because they've figured something out that others haven't, that they somehow are more moral or better performing than others are. We're not so different. Christians understand that they, along with the rest of mankind, were failing to love and depend upon the one who had made them for himself. Before Jesus intervened, all of us only chose ourselves as Lord and Savior instead of him, the only one who could take the weight of those expectations. That is the very essence of betrayal. It's why so often the Bible speaks of sin not so much in just crossing of a line as in economic terms, but in relational terms, like cheating on someone. It is the essence of betrayal. And because of that state, We all deserve the final form of this fiery revenge in hell to be consumed by this blazing oven as as hard as it is to speak of those things, to face God's anger. It is terribly uncomfortable to think about, but think about it, we must. Just like a cancer patient must take their diagnosis seriously. If you are a Christian, so far as it is in your power, this means that we need to plead with others to experience the rescue that has come to us purely by faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, a sin that we had committed, a very sin that put us on the wrong side of God's justice. And all that said, we need to recognize that God's justice, God's conquest, even as it is difficult to talk about, is bound up with the kingdom he offers. How do we expect that a world free of sin and sorrow and and sickness and evil would come any other way? But still a king that uses this power in such an incorruptible way, who desires and works for the good of his people, even if it must come through conquest, this is pretty far off of the authorities that we actually know, isn't it? Which leads us to verse 7, the king's confidence. 
Verse 7, for the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. You see, what makes this king's ambitions so pure and his means so wise that he could be sung about is that above all things, this king trusts the Lord. A king, only a king of such immovable trust can receive the security of God's steadfast love. Only a king of immovable trust can receive the same assurance that he will never be moved. Now, I mentioned before that this passage doesn't just look backward to the Davidic covenant. It looks forward as well. After all, Christians know that the only authority who comes close to fulfilling these expectations was Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus says to the crowds in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, speaking of himself, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In other words, Jesus understood himself to be the Son that 2 Samuel was referring to, the King that would have the eternal universal reign of David. He understood himself that way. And as the son, he spoke and lived out of the overflow of, the, of trust for his father, as he proved clearly again and again, unlike so many of the authorities that we know and so often trust in, he faced wealth, offers of fame, and popular approval, but they would never compel him. He would never be corrupted. And yet, in all of this, he was rejected. He was not the king that we wanted, his people wanted. I have to tell you, I don't think, again, that it is a king that we would want even today, left to, our, left to ourselves. Don't get me wrong, I think we long for the peace and joy that his kingdom promises. Those very longings influence your most intimate relationships and all of the work that you do. The reason I don't think that we want that king is we don't imagine ourselves to be the enemy. We imagine ourselves on the side of the singing ones, not the enemies on the other side, enemies of God and his king, let alone an enemy who deserves a fiery furnace. But when the Bible confronts us with these realities, it doesn't do so with a sneer. It does so pleading with us to wake up, to see that we really are worse off than we have ever dared to admit in our lives so that we might see the offer made in Jesus that much more clearly as the one who was mocked as, kingdom, as the king of the Jews, who actually was, takes up his kingdom by a cross. So Isaiah speaks of a king who received splendor, as this passage says, by being rejected. A king who received intimacy by being despised. A king who received triumph by being killed, a king who saved, though being consumed by the fire himself. Jesus faced our fire that his enemies, you and I, might be part of his new world of peace. That is what it means to be a Christian, actually, to be a part of a family of former enemies, not just enemies of one another, but enemies of God himself, rescued only by trusting in the good king who faced the fires for us and was raised from the dead to length of days forever and ever, a foreshadowing of resurrection, of eternal life that he is the first fruits of, that he might reign everything over everything as king so that I could be a part of that new world that he is king over. If Jesus, if sitting under Jesus's reign, if seeing him as your king, if delighting with him as a king forever doesn't seem like a delight to you, you have not understood the gospel. Where history is heading is not just reunion with your loved ones or simply getting a cheeseburger as often as you want it without gaining the extra pounds in heaven. Okay, this is what it's about. It's about getting Jesus as king and serving him forever, getting back what has been lost, deep dependence upon him and all the fruit and life that comes with it. Only Jesus comes close to being a king like Psalm 21, a king who has earned splendor, intimacy, and reign, a king who will soon come in judgment. The one Revelation describes as a rider whose robes are dipped in blood, which is one of the reasons why we plead with those of you who do not yet trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, not to delay in doing so. Even as you seriously wrestle with the claims that Jesus makes and the offer he makes you in the gospel, don't delay in taking him as Savior and Lord, waiting for a better offer. His judgment is coming. But more importantly, 
Only in his kingdom is the world you long for actually going to be found. Only in him can you find a king that you can trust, freeing you from over-reliance on other authorities who will fail you and the promises they make, freeing you for a life lived for a different master amidst every pressure to buy what the culture is selling. And Christians, hear me, this, this assurance, if this is true, even as it should so- sober you, it should animate your life. You belong to a family of former enemies, which means you can forgive your own. Unlike the rest of our culture, you do not need to go on a sin hunt, an enemy hunt, quick to di- identify who is on the wrong side so, that you're long, so long as you are on the right side. You, as a former enemy, can go pursue your own. You can go love the unlovable. You can model what our culture cannot do right now and approach those who are unlike you, who disagree with you, and offer the same news of life. You do not need to seek vengeance also because you have one who is the only one qualified to deal it out. In fact, you can look at those enemies who have betrayed and offended you and still forgive, even if it must take daily precedence, if you must forgive again, again, and again, and again, if you must forgive over and over and over again, because you know how much you have been forgiven, and because you plead that they might experience the same rescue and forgiveness you have experienced through Christ. You can even love your enemies. You can let your grudges and revenge die, pleading that those who wrong you find mercy through their own repentance. And now our job together is to behold our king, to submit to his rule, and to help others to do the same, to see the goodness and life in it. After all, Jesus is the only one deserving of glory, splendor, and intimacy, majesty, and power. And yet, do you realize he shared so many of these privileges with you? You who were a former enemy have now and have seen the splendor of Jesus have now are being made into a splendorous thing, made magnificent by his grace. The one who loved you despite how you were, loved you so much not to leave you that way. The friendship that Jesus has with the Father from eternity, he has brought you in on it, being known and loved honestly. And now he has bound up your future in a world without evil or tears where your sin is left far behind. There is no better king than him. Truly be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. And Lord, we want to do that today, to sing and praise your power. Jesus is truly the one who should be crowned king and is now, before whom every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. And we pray that those who are here would bow the knee as those who find it a delight to submit to his rule and not those who bow the knee as conquered enemies. Lord, together in this church, would you bind together a family of faith that is quick to forgive, quick to reconcile, quick to model what it means to be together as a family of former enemies, delighting in the same God, working through differences, overcoming grudges, pursuing those who have been kept at arm's length Lord, would you do so in such a clear way that the rest of the world would take notice to see the goodness that is found in submitting to King Jesus, that some might join us through faith and join us someday in his kingdom. And it's for King King Jesus' sake that we pray. Amen.